Now you want to talk about reading? Let's talk about reading. Let me tell you of the days of high adventure. The book served as a passageway to the evil worlds beyond. Ready to go, Doc? Oh, yes, yes, my dear fellow. I'll just check the gyroscopes. Hello, and welcome back to the Appendix N Book Club Podcast. With me, as always, is that wiry nerdy well, Jeff Goad. It's Jeff the Lean. Jeff the Lean. <laughs> I don't know. After COVID, I haven't been as lean as no, I was before. No, but... COVID-20. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And with us this week, we're very honored to have special guest Sarah Doom, game designer, writer, illustrator, layout artist, uh, especially frequently with Magpie Games. She is perhaps best known as one of the designers of Bluebeard's Bride and the game Velvet Glove. Hello, Sarah. Hi there. So we always like to ask our guests their uh, secret origin stories. So what is your gaming secret origin story? Um, well, I don't think it's that much of a secret because I, I have talked about it before. But I uh, was lucky enough to start gaming very young with my uncles who are six and seven years older than me. Mm-hmm. So, uh, they basically, my grandmother made them play with me. And so their D and D adventure had a little unicorn who was good for nothing but healing and, oh, no. and getting in trouble. Uh, that's, that's how young I was. Um, and then as I got older, I tried to gain more and actually ran into some remnants of satanic panic where some people were forbidden from hanging out with me or playing with me because clearly satanic elves and magic. Not today, Jesus. (laughs) 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 So, yeah. And, and after that kind of off and on until I, um, started playing a lot, which eventually led to me becoming a game designer. Mm -hmm. And were there some, what were some of the landmarks along the way? Obviously, uh, Dungeons and Dragons was the, the first one with your uncles. Uh, what were some of the other things that sort of really kept your interest kindled? So it's kind of funny. Unlike a lot of women, I never played Vampire, The Masquerade, or any of the White Wolf games. I mm. played, uh, I started with AD&D, and there was a brief foray into the Elf Quest role playing game. Mm. Sure. Okay. Um, Dragonlance, Tiny Bit of Forgotten Realms, Shadowrun, Earth Dawn, stuff like that is really where I found my way. Mm-hmm. Um, I played D and D three point five for a very long time. And when did what did it, sort of the move towards sort of um, I, I guess you know, we hate to put labels on it, but indie gaming for lack of a better word. When did that? Yeah, uh, that was at one Gen Con where I decided to try this games on demand thing that seemed mm-hmm. like fun. And uh, it's kind of funny. Basically, my first indie game was Apocalypse World. There you go. Okay. So I had a, a really fantastic introduction to the indie game world. And once that started, um, I was basically like, wait, what? There's, there's so much out there. I must play every game I can find. Mm-hmm. It, it really just sparked it. I had been going to, to Gen Con and Gary Con for a couple of years. Um, and then I also played Dungeon World and was just like, oh, I see what you're doing here. Mm-hmm. This is this is familiar yet different. Um, and I started running games and eventually attended a workshop, which is where we, we made Bluebeard's Bride. Mm, okay. 
And what, um, I mean, obviously 3.5 is its thing and, you know, obviously led into Pathfinder um, and other, you know, games of that are sort of, for lack of a better word, very, quite crunchy. And then Apocalypse World is a little bit more, um, I mean, it's, it's, it's got its conventions, but it's a little bit more open-ended, for lack of a better word. Fiction and forward is fiction forward is okay. the way I've heard it described. Okay, and and do you find yourself sort of still va- uh, vacillating? Is not the right bouncing or 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 reorienting between those two poles, or or is this now really much more into the apocalypse world fiction forward realm that is your comfort zone? So that's a little trickier. Um, I have a long-standing argument with Mark Diaz Truman of Magpie Games where he argues that I run trad games like an indie gamer and I always have. And I I don't know if I, I don't know. Like I said, we argue about it because to Mm -hmm. me, this is just how you run games. Mm -hmm. So I would say that I still play a wide variety of games. Like right now I'm I'm finally playing vampire, the masquerade for the first time (laughs) uh, with the new rules. And we are actually starting (laughs) to, We're going to use, um, what is it? Shadows of the Demon Lord. Sure. Okay. To play Curse of Strahd. Oh, cool. (laughs) And this is a group that is primarily uh, people who play play or make a lot of indie games. Okay. Um, And we're we're playing these more traditional kind of games. Um, I am still primarily designing in the Powered by the Apocalypse world space. Mm Mm-hmm because that works really well for me. Mm-hmm. So I, I have done design in, in the other realms, but whenever I am wanting to make a game that really speaks to me, that works. There you go. And uh, since you mentioned Fiction Forward, what was your sort of um, gateway into uh, science fiction, fantastic literature, you know? So... Um, I always read a lot as a kid. I read enough that it was a problem. Uh, like, Oh no. <laughs> um, staying up too late, not getting enough sleep so I could finish a book, uh, sneaking novels inside my textbooks at school. Um, there was of course the time I got sent to the principal's office at a Catholic school because I brought in the monster manual to draw from. There you go. I'm just imagining you walking into the bathroom and like picking up the lid of the toilet seat and then having like a novel just like duct taped in there that you pull out and like you read secretly. <laughs> I, I was frequently late back from lunch because I was reading. So, uh, yeah, so I had a serious addiction and, um, because of, of that time and everything, one of my, the first fantasy science fiction series that I read was the Zamp series. Mm, Anthony, And my entire family read it and we would talk about it, but it has not aged well. Mm. So (laughs) I started with that and then I, I found stuff like, uh, the dragon riders of Pern series. And then I was just gone. Like Mm. I read all of the standard fiction they wanted me to do at school, but the minute we could choose our own books, I was back to fantasy and science fiction. There you go. And, are there any particular works that you would cite as being particularly influential on your gaming or that you want other gamers to read to sort of say that this will make your gaming that much richer? So one of my very favorite authors is Caitlin Kernan. 
And so especially my gamers who are into anything Lovecraft-esque, they're, they've probably at least heard of her. Um, but the way she describes the dread right before you encounter the cosmic horror is just utterly delicious. Like her descriptions of the stuff in the shadows before you see them. Right. And, uh, and Kate, yeah. Yeah. And Caitlin Kieran, I believe is a paleontologist. Is that right? Yes. Uh, yes. Right. So, so she has a real sense of like being able to create like deep time in a way that, um, you know, people were just saying, Oh, a million years, a billion years, maybe not able to convey. Right. She is, she is able to go a lot deeper than that. So you have this, broad structure of science that is very firmly holding and interlocked with this horror. Um, Cause I, I, you, I have to say that the, the science informs her conception of horror. It seems hmm. it's, it's like she, she looked at, you know, the fossils and was like, Oh, I see something terrible here. Let me write it down. And is there a particular work of hers that you would cite as one that people as a good gateway to her, uh, you know, her, her orb? I think Threshold is a really good introduction, but one of my favorite books of hers is Silk. And uh, especially if you're uncomfortable with spiders, you might not enjoy it. Um, Everybody get your Fiction X cards out. <laughs> <laughs> but she also, she one of the, the characters uh, that reappears in many of her stories showed up in a comic book called Alabaster. Mm-hmm. And so this also draws in a religious aspect of like, traditional angels that are terrifying with the many wings and the many eyes and it is problematic um it touches on mental illness the the main character is an albino Mm -hmm. uh so there's a lot of potential for exploitation in it um but it also has some real magic Mm -hmm. and and uh kate mccarran i believe also has a real sense of place where she writes a lot in about stories set in the south the deep south which i love because i don't i don't understand why there isn't more set in that that area because it is so ripe for horror right i mean we were talking about i think on one of our previous book clubs i think it was august derleth that the problem with a lot of people writing lovecraftian fiction is they ape the form and not the dread and the con you know so they say oh everything has to be in new england whereas the ones who are most successful will write sort of to what they know but bring the cosmic horror there whether it's um today's author we'll, we'll talk about later he had some lovecraftian fiction as well um but you know caitlin kieran using the deep south if uh, if august derleth had talked about the upper midwest instead of aping lovecraft and just talking about new england he might have been a much more success- successful lovecraftian author i think in some ways that actually if i may suggest a second author absolutely totally segues into the the same arena of uh sylvia marino garcia Sure. Okay. Since she is once another person who's interpreting that Lovecraft fiction, but she's like, "Hey, I'm gonna set it in Mexico," you know, <laughs> with this acknowledgement, like I am the person that Lovecraft would have hated. So let me look at that. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. So her her anthology, she walks in shadows, which is all women writing about Lovecraft. Um, I, I think it's a great thing for people to read to see that that freshness and that difference. And then her her novel Mexican Gothic was oh my god, so good. Right, and that's been winning all the awards the last year or so. So yeah, yeah. phenomenal. Yes. Oh, okay. So we are talking about let's talk about this week's book. This week we are reading 
the author Michael Shea, who also has a strong Lovecraftian connection, although this is more traditional swords and sorcery, if we would say. And we're reading Nif the Lean. Sarah, which edition of the book are you working with today? Uh, well, I have it on my Kindle. Um, okay. It is the Incomplete Nift. Um, I do not have a date on it, I think. Ah, here we go. It's the 1982 version, I believe. Right. Uh, in, yep, Niftaline is 1982, and the Incomplete Nift is, an anthology says, 2000. There it is. Thank you. Yep. Yeah. Jeff, are you, what are you working with today? I'm working with the same thing that Sarah is. It's the 2000 um, Bane version of the Incomplete Nift. It is the omnibus of both Niftaline and the Minds of Behemoth. And it has this Gary Ruddle cover. <laughs> um, yep. Ruddle. Oh, yeah, you've, you've, you've got the paperback version. Yeah. So we're all working from the same from the same source. I do wish I had the 1982 one because it has this amazing painting by uh, Michael Shea, who I think is probably one of the all-time great cover, cover artists. Um, I mean, not Michael Shea, I'm sorry, Michael Whalen. Mixing, mixing up oh, Michael. Yeah. yeah, love him. Yeah. Um, all right. And uh, Jeff, do, you have a, do we have a high Gaxian word this week? Um, and we do if you have one set up. Um, I, I feel like I have officially retired from okay. um, high Gaxian words of the day. But if you want to if you want to take it over, okay. um, feel I free. I will uh, put one up here. I don't even know how to pronounce it because, again, uh, someone actually made a good point. It's books that you have read. Uh, a lot of people will mispronounce words that they have read frequently, have not seen. So it is codal, C-A-U-D-A-L. I don't have my phone here to read it out to you, uh, but it means of or like a tale. And we come upon that a couple of times in Fishing the Demon Sea with all these insectoid creatures of various stingers and other appendages. So codal, C-A-U-D-A-L. Sarah, do you have a word? Or? Uh, I, I do not, although I, I feel now I missed a chance because there were a couple of times in the book I had to look up words. And there were a couple of times that my Kindle failed me. It was like, that's not a word. <laughs> oh, and Hoy, here's what you're looking for. Coddle. Coddle. There Coddle. we go. That was actually... Of or like a tail. Yes. A seriously creepy voice to be saying that <laughs> word. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Sarah, what did you think of this book? I had a lot of feelings about it. Mainly, I, I enjoyed it. I, I was able to kind of relax and sink into the story and enjoy it for what it was. Um it did remind me a lot of Clark Ashton Smith and swords mm-hmm. and sorcery type stuff. After the first story, I was expecting, I was expecting something a little more occult and extreme. Mm-hmm. And I was a little surprised at how restrained it was. I, at one point I actually uh, turned to my partner and I was like, this is downright prudish. Like for all mm-hmm. the discussion of pubic hair and nipples. Yeah. <laughs> um, or big guava breasts. Oh, that was hilarious. That was. <laughs> <laughs> um, I mean, that did not belong in like the top worst way to describe women, but <laughs> like I've heard worse, but that, that was funny. Yeah. <laughs> um, Although we also learned that Nift has a very large sex. Yes. <laughs> yes. The discussion of different men, how they, had surprisingly large appendages for their frames. <laughs> I was like, okay, that's, yeah. that's a thing. Um, did, you, did you find the prudishness um, odd because of yes, the, the setting of the first story? Did you, or did you think, oh, maybe this is 19, uh, 
or just because of the the standards of our day now. This is 1982, so it's almost 40 years ago. Um, but I mean, obviously, there was a lot of, you know, sex and swords and sorcery. So I'm, I I would posit that this is the author's issue hmm, because okay. if if you look at the part in the Demon Sea where they're talking about the orgy that they have to fight their way across, yeah, mm-hmm. he just dances around describing what's going on, mm-hmm. and and it's like. Dude, you're describing an orgy. I think you can say but. I think you can <laughs> say, you know, different body parts. And instead, the only body parts that are called out are mouths and hands. Mm. Right. Um, so I definitely got a sense that he was titillating himself up to the point where he felt comfortable and then he drew back. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was very much like almost coded where like, you know, phrases like, of mass orgiastic copulation with water demons <laughs> is something that like you can have plausible deniability behind because if you've also got like a 12 year old who's reading it, they're not going to know what that means and they're going to move on. Mm-hmm. So perhaps it was an intentional choice to have it written in a way where adult readers would understand what he was getting at. But if they, but if like a younger reader wasn't getting it, they would just be like, Oh yeah, this must just be like more weird stuff that's happening down here. Yeah. I I wonder, um, and just, you know, we can only go by the text, but he has an amazing collection of his Lovecraftian short fiction. um, One of which is specifically about porn, porn stars who would sort of invoke, you know, Lovecraftian (laughs) evil by, it's a sort of a, I'm trying to remember the name of the story. It's basically, it's basically the, the um, it's a, a Poe slash Lovecraft slash, uh, you know, Poe revenge story slash Lovecraft story. I'm trying to remember the title of it. I'll pull it up. Um, but. Well, while you're, while you're thinking about that, first I want to say, Sarah, at, while I was reading this, I was so glad that this book wasn't a steaming pile of garbage because what we, what we asked Strix to appear on the show with to discuss <laughs> was like possibly the worst book I have encountered this entire project. project. It was tough. It was like incomprehensible, full of rape. Ugh. And like, yeah, like not only was it a terrible book, but it was also like really upsetting and like long and boring. Oh. And I'm just like, oh my God, I'm so glad this is better. <laughs> I'm so glad <laughs> we didn't like get everybody involved in Bluebeard's Bride, like <laughs> reading some like horrific piece of like incomprehensible trash. Um, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. people would definitely be saying like, yeah, you guys are just trolling at this point, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, but actually, um, it's interesting because his his Lovecraftian fiction, and we were talking about this just earlier, he actually played to his strengths. He had been, I think, a person of very many, um, uh, had bounced around doing a lot of different things. So he had been like a day laborer. I believe he'd been a high school teacher at some point. Um, so, and he was very much from, um, he was from Los Angeles, spent a lot, most of his adult life in the Bay Area. So he's also very much uh, using the geography and the, the social climate of his uh, you know, that he was in. Um, so he wrote a lot about like characters in his Lovecraftian fiction who are essentially homeless, uh, drug addicts and all that. So I don't think the the it's certainly maybe at this point in his career, the stuff is a little bit more prudish. And then as he gets past that and he's able to write stuff that's maybe in a, sort of in a more modern idiom, it's uh, less so. So Hoy, I've got a question for you. Sure. You know, while I was reading this, this, this piece felt very much um, inspired by and an homage to all the sword and sorcery that came before this, mm-hmm. especially, you know, as Sarah mentioned, Clark Ashton Smith, 
but also I would say like Jack Vance's Dying Earth series oh, has yeah. a big yeah. influence on this as well. And in Clark Ashton Smith and in Jack Vance, we had this very florid, uh, like floral, um, flowery, that's the word I'm looking for, very flowery language. Um, and we see a lot of that in here. I'm curious, is his writing style different when he's writing horror? Is it more um, approachable or does he also have this kind of thick purple prose when he's writing his horror? Uh, it varies, I think, per story. Um some of them are quite ornate, but I think some of them are definitely a little bit much, very much grounded in sort of like the, they become phantasmagorical, but, but not as purple. Um, it is like, you know, you're up way too late in Los Angeles, uh, San Francisco, you know, in the Tenderloin or something like that. Maybe you, uh, you know, combination of like lightheaded from hunger, maybe on some other illicit substances, that kind of stuff like that. Um, there is actually talk about Lovecraftian ickers as like drugs in some of his stories. Okay. Um, so now, Sarah, the act of reading this collection, was it enjoyable? Did you enjoy reading this or was it more of a chore? So both. Okay. Um, in that there were conceits that made it a little harder to read and took me out of it a little bit. But then once we got into the actual story, I, I relaxed and was like, oh, this is enjoyable. I need like a glass of lemonade and be sitting out in a hammock. And, and I'm sad, um, but it was the nested narration. Mm, the Shag Margold introductions and what have you. And, and the first story, you know, it's like, so you have the overarching introduction, then you have the introduction to the story. Then within the story, Nift begins telling a story. And I'm like, all right. <laughs> You're like, how, how, how many levels of inception are we going to go? <laughs> it's like, I have read stories like that before and I have not enjoyed them. So I was pleasantly surprised that I did enjoy it after that. And you had mentioned we had, you know, how, uh, so a certain amount of element of prudishness, obviously. Um, what other things did you feel, um, did you feel, for example, like the depiction of women just really didn't work or did, or did it work in its own context, you know, and that kind of stuff like that, you know, it didn't. Well, first of all, what women, I mean, yeah, you exactly. have, you have exactly. two to three female characters at the most. Right. One per story pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> so, and they're always like a supernatural character. So the first one, um, the, the description of the woman, Growing from a skeleton to a person was the best thing. I oh, loved amazing it. scene. I right. loved it. Yeah. It was so Hellbound Hellraiser 2 <laughs> when like Julia comes up and she's just like blood and muscle, and but then like maggots on the skeleton yeah, here. The, yeah. the maggots are re knitting her flesh. <laughs> yeah. So good. Yeah. Um, I loved the uh, maggots turning into the full moon of her breasts. I was like, yeah. What's funny, though, about the prudishness of it, it's a very American prudishness because these stories are also incredibly gory. Um, maybe yep. gory is not the right word, but lots of body horror, lots of like grotesqueries, um, like when they're walking through hell, we're hearing about all these like just kind of disgusting things he's seeing. Uh, so it's interesting that like it really, in my in my opinion, it really goes there with that stuff. Mm -hmm. I was slightly disappointed. Oh, OK. <laughs> Maybe that says something about the kind of stuff I normally read, but 
And actually, and it also might say something about the kind of stuff Hoy and I usually read because we've we've done this is episode 102, and we've done a hundred episodes prior to this on books written before 1979. So now that we're like just peeking into 1982, maybe things are starting to get like a little uh, like a little wilder for me. Uh, <laughs> See, that makes sense too. Yeah, uh, um, because there. That's why the description of the woman in the first story was like a high peak of body horror. Mm-hmm. And then his description of the creatures in hell was fascinating and unique, but I didn't find it particularly gross. Okay. Um, but, you know, maybe that is also tied into the idea of, of how he's portraying people because it is, it is, also in the story, very few men that are considered as full people right? throughout, you know, a lot of them are, are very dismissed by NIFT throughout all of the stories. It's more of like unique vision, unique ideas around hell. The fact that the, the demons got high from burning other creatures, like there's mm-hmm. some really cool, interesting ideas in there um, that I I almost wish he had fleshed out more. I'm like, that right. stuff is good. Give me more of that. Right. right. The yes, the uh, Guildmer speculation on the cosmology of this universe are are demons the distillate of <laughs> our worst impulses, or are we the yeah. evolved upwards from demons? So, which direction does it go in? Exactly. Are we their progeny, or are they our progeny? Yeah. Um, absolutely, Sarah. Of the four stories, was there one that you felt to be more successful than the others? Was there one that you enjoyed the most? It is really difficult because I love everything around the goddess in glass. Mm-hmm. Like the description of the creatures of the, the little um, flock. Flock wardens and yeah. the, the flock themselves. Yeah. Yeah. While also building an 80, an 80 foot tall mech. Yeah. Right. 800 foot tall mech. Oh, I'm sorry. 800 foot tall mech. <laughs> yeah, right. Like what is this? Um, <laughs> it was just so wild out there that I loved it. But I also really felt like that first story. I was like, Oh, this is swords and sorcery, but with an extra yes. dark occult bit to it that somehow managed to do it without being misogynistic. Mm-hmm. which impressed me so right. yeah i think that was the thing you said although there's no women characters and you know obviously we'll have different interpretations each of the um three women are sort of drivers of the story right the vampire queen um the dead uh, uh what's her name who returns from the dead in the first story uh oh yeah delisum delisum yeah and then i thought dame libness was a great character because she's kind of you know she's got her own agency she's like she's ultimately pulling a con on the whole city itself right? and like kind of openly that surprised right. me <laughs> right you know and i like how they describe it you know she's she's like got her she's like can't be bothered so she's got like her her skirt hitched up so you can see her bare feet as she's pacing around and like you know haranguing these all, these aristocrats and she just tucks stuff into like her hair and into like her bot you know her robes <laughs> so i i think looking at that in comparison to the vampire queen and and even I can't say her name starts with a D. Maggot, maggot breast. Um, <laughs> oh no, she was yeah, Queen Vol- Volvavia. Volvavia. <laughs> right. It's very Queen, out there. Queen right. Vulva. Yeah, it's Vulva. Right. She's, yeah, it's exactly. the Vulva. Queen Vulva. Yeah. <laughs> they weren't. Neither of them are afraid to get their hands dirty. Yeah. To do what they want. Uh, like you know, the vampire queens. 
consumption of that of that person was great. Like that's what vampires are might be like, right? Um, but they had a unapproachable delacy mm-hmm. that the priestess does not. Yeah, reading the very priest, earthy. The priestess yeah. was almost. I was like, I'm actually a little surprised that a man wrote this depiction, but in some ways, she feels very male. Mm. One thing that I thought was really cool about the um, the pearls of the vampire queen, you're talking about her vampirism. I love that kind of a central portion of this is that like once per year, she needs to immortalize one of the kings in order to keep her youth. And then I love that we find out that immortalized means that she drinks all their blood and then their taxidermied in the basement. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and I, I had to wonder, I mean, so that's so clearly a parallel to the, the folk like your King kind of thing where he has to sacrifice Mm -hmm. himself for the land. Yeah. That I'm just like, are, is this is this a statement about how you feel about that, or is or was this just like a convenient structure to hang your story on? Because you have this bizarre, interesting stuff over here with these pearls that are in these creatures that can easily kill a man. Yeah, you know, and it's all these creatures in this swamp that are just like fun horror. Like if I ran into them in a D and D adventure, I'd be excited. Oh yeah, the ghouls were cool. <laughs> yeah. I, I mean, I'd be uh, excited that I probably the goals. my yeah. my PC would die, but yeah, because <laughs> they were they were well powered. I actually lean towards your. Um, I don't know exactly if, what statement you're making, but I lean towards your question. It is a statement because yeah. one thing I thought was unique about each of these four stories is that he is very very much concerned uh, in each story about the actual economic activity of each situation that they're in and and what compromises that are made for that community to survive. Right. So there's, he talks about like this fishing thing. At one point he talks about anvil pastors. It's this exploitation of this environment and of a, you know, essentially imprisoned labor, right? This God, but it's also imprisoned labor. Um, the, the, the town, when they get sent down to the underworld is to, at the behest of these rich ranchers, essentially. Right. <laughs> right. To get this punk kid. Um, wow. And of course the, the, the vampire queen provides prosperity and protection to this community. And they talk about, is she really that bad? She, you know, she sucks some blood and one person a year is immortalized, but it's not like war. Unlike all these other communities, right? Like Anvil Passage is exporting war. They're arms dealers, right? So I mean, maybe that was, was the message or the thought he was, he was going at like yeah. this pagan way of doing things was more civilized than we are. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. And I would like to build on something you also said earlier, Sarah. You'd mentioned that there are very few full people in this story. And while I was reading it, like I, I'm, I, I had the obvious comparisons here. I'm thinking of Thafford and the Grey Mouser. I'm thinking of Conan. I'm thinking of these kinds of stories. And for me, Thafford and the Grey Mouser, Conan, uh, Kugel the Clever, these are, these are characters who are very fleshed out and I know who they are. I don't know that I know who Nift is. I, I, as, as great as the world building was, I'm not sure I really know who this character is. Was that a similar experience that, that either of the two of you had, or do you want to push back against that statement a little bit? Okay. Um, it was very Conan-esque in the feeling that I was getting a biased view of Nift in every story. 
And it, it felt like an excuse. I mean, the one, the one introduction where he's even like, this is Niff's ex-girlfriend and she kind of didn't look at him very charitably when she wrote about him. She, she exaggerated, you know, the amount of, of clear bias in each story felt like it then fit together in a, a more complete story or more complete portrait of the, of the character, but still feeling like I didn't know everything. Right. Yeah. Right. It's that guy, you know, who's, you know, you all move through a scene and then like, Oh, uh, you know, Hey, Niff, yo, I know, no, no, Niff, he's a jerk, but you're trying to create this picture from four different accounts. And it was a way of Michael Shea of also trying to be able to be, um, be slightly inconsistent with the character, right? Because in this particular, well, I guess that's the girlfriend. She's she's basically trolling her old, her you know, Nift her ex boyfriend by writing like a, an unflattering version of him. Um, this one is you know him. He's a little younger. The Anvil Pastor story, but he's not even really in it. He's just there as the observer character in that last story. Yeah. Um. So I agree, uh, Jeff. I think you're. I, I agree, but I also think that. Sarah's point is really well taken. And then uh, Joe, who was on our book club, said that the latter two books really do delve more into uh, his relationship with Barnard, and Barnard becomes more um, rounded as a character. But I do want to say one thing, though. Even though the characters are very, really, um, uh, none of them are delved into pretty deeply, he does still find, even in like, the most miserable character, he gives them a little something. Like Wimford is this total punk kid. Right. Wimford's amazing. He's right. my favorite character. Right. But everyone is still like, oh, you know, oh, you know, he's the, the promise of youth, you know, like, oh, he can run really well. Oh, he's such a bright kid. If he wasn't just such an asshole, you know, we'd all, we'd, <laughs> you know, right. Um, or Defalk. We think Defalk is just like this kind of uh, up and striver, you know, just some some jackass who, who left Dallas him to kill herself. But at the end, you know, Defalk, you know, we see Defalk sort of now approaching early middle age and having to deal with like the disappointments and deficiencies of being like a striver, but not that, you know, like that whole scene with the, the rich guys, like basically like taunting the whole time and like default, you know, tries to go out in a blaze of glory at the end, but he's literally erased. Right. In, in, as he jumps into like the storm in hell. Right. Um, so there's little bits like that. And then of course, Guildmirth is a great character too. Right. And the, so I think these little bits where he tries to humanize them, even though characters who are supposedly jerks, I think speaks to something that Shay's got going on. I kind of want to disagree with you. Go ahead. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, mainly about uh, Wilm, Wilmford. I'm going to say it wrong. Wimford. Uh, w- w- Wimford. Wimford. That, it, it's like he was trying so hard to forgive him for being such an asshole that it, it it came around back to asshole. Like, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Because he even says at one point, basically this kid has no excuse. And he's like, he is talking the, the way he would not normally talk to a servant. And I guess it just kind of, it rubbed me the wrong way. Cause I'm like, yeah, so it's, it's a, a, a rich young guy. You're excusing him. And then at the end I was like, Oh hell yes! You left him behind. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> right. and I, I love was so you, excited. I love the other. Even before that, they're like, "Hey, punk! You know, we have this curse that will literally hook our hearts out from the underworld and kill us, and we're actually con- contemplating doing like having that happen to us." Because <laughs> <laughs> you're that bad. Yeah, you're that bad. But I also want to say I think that um, Sarah's earlier point. Uh, I think it's really well taken that you know we really are experiencing. 
not only NIFT from a bunch of different people's perspectives, but we're also relying on people's own perspectives to um, dr- to um, to tell us who they are. Like, I feel like in Shag Margold's eulogy at the very beginning, I love that moment where Shag is telling us that NIFT said to him, Shag, I can't take uh, money from a man I admire as much as you. You're the most widely traveled, honest man I know. And it's like, obviously Nif didn't say that. So I feel like from the very beginning, Michael Shea is doing a, 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 I think he's doing a good job of showing us that we're getting a bunch of very biased perceptions yeah. of this man's life. Mm-hmm. That That is very true. I mean, the one person who is the most consistent is Barnard, right? Mm-hmm. Like, even in stories where he doesn't have a big part, where they're just, like, off in the plane hunting, I was like, yeah, that sounds like something Barnard would do. Right. <laughs> but then there's that, that great bit where Barnard, like, starts quoting back the poetry in high archaic to the wizard, right? <laughs> and oh, yeah. he actually knows it better than the wizard, right? <laughs> so. Now, moving this over to more of a gaming side of the conversation, Sarah, how gameable did you feel like this text was? I would say that I would be very pleased with myself if I made an adventure this weird. (laughs) (laughs) Like some of it, I was like, oh yeah, PCs would do this dumb thing, you know? (laughs) Um, But it was, it's, it's a little difficult because it's like Conan in the, these are epic stories of one man who's larger than life, right? So are you playing Nift or are you playing someone who's heard of him? Are you just playing in this world? So playing in this world, totally possible, totally awesome. I would be excited. I'd be like, look at my weird demons. And also there's this man who we're not saying he's having sex with the demons, but he has a red tentacle that he inserts in them. You know? <laughs> <laughs> but on the other hand, I think, you know, Nift shadows everything so broadly that it's it's that problem of, of playing in the universe. Do you play the character? Mm, I see. I mean, he's he's up against truly epic level stuff, like especially in the, the uh, Fishing the Demon Sea. But we never actually see that, like, Nift is not Conan, right? He's, like, not indefeatable, right? He gets his ear, he has an ear, you know, and Barnar also has an ear bitten off. Um, they're running from vampire fruit, right? Right, <laughs> right. Conan you know, would not run from vampire fruit, right? And they're <laughs> wrestling polyps, and um, and so he's like incredibly competent, but maybe also incredibly um, lucky, you know. So yeah, is this um, is this something that you would do in your preferred idiom of uh, apocalypse, uh, you know, apocalypse world type games, or was this something that you might work with in another format if you were doing this? So that's what it is. That's the problem. The world, the adventure, would be uh, more traditional, like D and D kind of thing. Nift is an apocalypse world character who's running around in a dungeon. Uh huh. Because okay. you could be Nift in apocalypse world because sometimes you're lucky. And you're the best there is. You're the only one. So, you know, whatever you want to call him, he's a rogue, an explorer, general lucky guy. I don't know Um, what you call his playbook. That makes sense because he does mess up. He does get hurt. He takes that big tumble, although he points out that Barnard tumbled twice 
Right. Yeah. Right. <laughs> so he could work in apocalypse world really well. And the, the weirdness of the world could also work in that system. But, but the quest isn't quite the right language. Mm-hmm. Speaking of the quest, you know, the quest in the fishing of the demon sea is, you know, Nift and um, Barnar have been arrested and are going to be put to death. Um, and then it turns out the whole thing was just a big ruse for them to essentially have like a geese spell cast on them for them to go ahead and do this quest that they don't want to do. Now, in a sense, we are taking away player and character agency when we do things like that as GMs. But also one thing that I think is fun is that in the story, Nift seems to be pushing back against that taking away of agency by first being like, no, I'm not going on your stupid adventure. Like, I'd rather you just go ahead and kill me unless you want to meet my demands. Right. And then by the end of it, like he actually doesn't do the thing that they wanted him to do all along. So I guess that's my, 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 my rambling preamble to the question of, do you feel like it is okay to, in your games as a game master, create storylines that are based on a um, taking away of agency like that? If they still have room to negotiate within it, like Nift does. That honestly just reminds me of a game I played in where we, we all made our characters and we were all ready. We we're like, we're going to do this thing. And we started playing and the GM transported us to a different universe. Ah. <laughs> <laughs> and it, it kind of sucked. Like we went with yeah. it because, you know, we're all friends and we wanted to play. Um, but like we went in there expecting swords and sorcery and then we got transported into science fiction and I'm like, Oh, that's slightly disappointing. Yeah. So I would say overall, no, Hmm. but I, I think that is because it is, it is constraint of perhaps genre and not a constraint of player agency. Cause I think that's more complicated. Hmm. Um, but you know, if you are railroading your characters and saying, yeah, you're going to die unless you do this, uh, this adventure, you kind of deserve the snarky talk back, you know, the little right, bit right, of right. meta. Because, I mean, and just yeah. the insults that, that Nift hurls at the beginning of that story about how he <laughs> like would have seduced more of their wives, except they all smelt like cattle. <laughs> that know? was great. I could only yeah. service two or three a day. I was like, what? Right. <laughs> <laughs> right. And then he, you know, he calls the uh, the rod master a serial abuser of with both hands, <laughs> serial self abuser. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's great. Yeah. Now, Sarah, were you? Did you come across anything from these stories that you thought would be really fun to steal and to inject into your games? <laughs> well, aside from just the like the classic sword sorcery sorcery the first one the yeah. idea of the bone shats and how they would rip people's spines open and and ex, and just like expand that so that they could gather up everyone's nerves and and suck on it like it's a treat as they tortured people you know that that was great i would steal that yeah um the fact that they had humans once again as herds as herd animals and like i'm going to make you walk over this uncomfortable coral so that it hurts you and i can then ingest that hurt 
yeah, that's that's some good stuff to steal. Right. How about you, Hoy? What do you what anything you want to steal from this? Um, I mean, the whole thing, really. I mean, it's perfect to me. The you know, I mean, we harp on it, but it's because it's our thing. This is like totally DCC, right? This is like Harley, like, especially like the Gatherer of the Dead. That's like totally like a Harley Stroh character. Oh, right? the fact that you have to to wrestle to get in. Right. It's very hardly. Sorry. (laughs) Well, and also that was, and that's funny because one of the questions that I asked the people in um, the patron book club prior to this was if these stories were adventure modules, which gaming company is publishing these adventure modules? Right, right. Are these Goodman Games? Are these Lamentations of the Flame Princess? Is this Northwind Adventures? Is this Necrotic Gnome? Like who, who's putting out these adventures? One of the guys in my club said, Oh, if only we knew somebody who had an in with a with a company that puts out box sets based on literary property. Is <laughs> 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 what Joe said. Uh, That's funny. Uh, um, I did want to also note one other thing, and it's more in the fiction side, but back to this, which is that to me it strikes me at this that the characters in this, and it's from the lens of being a relatively working class writer. Um, Everything we, we constantly see, like the procedures that the characters are going through. It's not just like, oh, and this thing was done. It's like, okay, we're stringing the ropes when we're going to go over the inside the um, the catwalk, the catwalk inside the the vampire queen's pyramid. This is how we go wrestle these these polyps to get the pearls, right? This is like a person who is right again writing from experience, drawing like I have done manual labor, right? Um, but I'm, I'm I'm also erudite. You know, I may be like one of those people who, you know, on his, as you did on your breaks, he's on his lunch break at the construction site. He pulls the paper back out and he's reading that. And then he goes back to, you know, breaking his back and shoveling a trench. Right. Um, so I like that procedural element. I would like to bring that in of, and that's sort of old school. Like, how do we solve this thing? It's not just a role. It's like, okay, well, if you want to do this, here's what the physical environment looks like. And how are you going to overcome it? You know, or this creature, you've seen this creature does X, Y, Z. It's not going to be a matter of having like enough bonuses on your hit roll to defeat this thing. Uh, but we see that it has a little gap here in its shell or something like that. And this is how you're going to deal with it, you know, or that um, that nemesis um, minor demon that that keeps on like singing the song with um, with um, and when they play the music against each other, right? It's dueling, dueling mandolins, right? That's such a great scene. So. <laughs> Um, that's a good point. Cause I mean, that was something about, you know, OD and D is it was more a test of the player than the character, right? Like, yes, are you yes. smart enough to figure this out? Um, that is an interesting point to, to look at that. Plus, I mean, he even detailed like, Oh, we paid this witch, one of the small pearls to go do this thing for us, you know? So yeah. it is not that, that bigger than life, well, I am the hero, and so I just knew someone who could do it, or I just told them to do it. She she just did it because I was so handsome. You know, they're like, no, we have to pay people. Right. <laughs> now, Sarah, I love that you mentioned that, you know, really old school D&D was more about how smart the player is. Now, I'm question, I'm curious, as a game master, when you have players who are playing characters who are smarter than they are, how do we negotiate that as judges where we're not just being like, okay, give me a, an intelligence role or give me a charisma role? Like how, how, how do we negotiate that and make it, make it so that the player can role play it, but also still role play somebody who maybe has more savvy than they do? So that makes me think of two things. Uh, the first of which was whenever I was playing Lady Blackbird and I had to come up with a lot of 
um, off the cuff lore of how to fix a spaceship that I wasn't even entirely sure what it was made of. And my GM at that time was basically like, I don't understand a single word you just said. So let's pretend it worked. (laughs) (laughs) You know, sometimes you just make that call where it's like, yeah, you know what? That seems legit. We're just going to go with it. Um, is what you do. And then the other thing it reminded me of is actually blades in the dark. So the mechanic that you can flash back and say, no, I was prepared for this. And I had packed my magic lock picks that are specifically for this kind of lock because I am so smart that I would have known to do that was something that I absolutely hated about the game the first time I played it. And I was like, why do I hate this so much? Why am I having such a strong reaction? And I was like, oh, it's because I'm used to playing OD&D. And this feels like I'm breaking the game. Like yeah, I'm lying. You're, you're cheating. cheating. <laughs> I haven't played any of the Apocalypse World games, but isn't this also the perfect use of like creating like a move or a custom move that is like fills in the, the, the weakness in that player's game? Like, oh, here's your uh, your uh your your scam move you know you're not like not normally a person who's like a glib of tongue but we're going to give you a scam move that you can invoke for um you know to fill in sort of your the weakness in your game if you will um or you know but you're still going to want to role play it to some degree right but you can trigger it and say well this is what happens and then between you and the game the game master you can adjudicate and you can sort of um narrate that prose that will happen that will make it work right um yes um there are a couple in every game normally has kind of a general basic move that allows you to deal with stuff like that. Like, Oh, you don't normally backstab people, but let's, you're going to try it this time. So you can definitely do that. You could do a custom move. Um, I think this, this is more, maybe this is a blades in the dark game. Mm. Yeah. Sure. I like that. You know, I, I, and I'm liking the answers that I'm getting here because I, I'm also agreeing because I feel like we have two ends of the spectrum on one end. We have the full on OD and D style of like, if the player can't deliver the monologue I need in order to convince this 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 NPC, then it's not going to work. Versus like the super, like, all I'm doing is looking at my character sheet and I see I have a persuasion skill. So I say to the DM, okay, I'm going to persuade them. And then I roll a d20 before describing what I'm doing. There's that whole vast world in between where we give the player the opportunity to have their character, you know, role play it, but we're assuming that maybe the character might have been more eloquent in in their actual delivery of it. Right. We as a game master know what they're actually asking for. So at that point we give them a role to just to see how successful they were. Yeah. Right, right. And then again you can use that sort of um apocalypse world scale of six great success, success with consequences. Uh, you know, failure with interesting yes. consequences. Because I would say frequently, a lot of stuff that happens in this book is failure with interesting consequences. Right? There's a lot of that. Yeah, absolutely. We're losing ears. We're getting scars. But we're also having like fun little weird things happen, like with the elixir splash on the hand. And yeah. now you've got permanent ambidextrous. Uh, uh, you're now ambidextrous. Yeah. Which actually somebody in the patron book club mentioned reminded them of um, B1 in Search of the Unknown, where like if you were like drinking from the the pool, like you'll get like different abilities from it. Mm-hmm. Uh, they thought that felt very Dungeons and Dragons. Yep. Yeah, yep. definitely. 
One thing that I noticed while I was reading this is I'm currently running a very old school style weekly game. And most of the characters have gotten up to about seventh level right now. But when they were first level characters, people were dying left and right. And that moment where they're traveling through the swamp and they meet Kirkin and Kirkin (laughs) is like on his own. Clearly, whoever he was traveling with had died. And they're like, "Okay, you get a quarter share, but you can hang out with us. He's like, oh, please, that's fine. Thank you. And then like he ends up dying in the next scene. (laughs) And it just it reminded me of like when my players like they roll up a quick character to replace the one that just died. And then that quick character they just rolled up also so dies in the next scene. <laughs> we introduced him and then he's dead yep, yep. moments later. <laughs> it's good times, right? Right. There's stuff, yeah. There's some other OD&D stuff. You mentioned them hiring the witch. I think there was also even talk about, like, oh, if we went, went down here again, we would have to hire like, you know, 50 men at arms with this weight of gold that we have. Yeah. You know, we could hire this many men at arms. And, um, you know, and there's real talk about, okay, we we don't want to get greedy. This is how much gold we're going to ask because if we want to stay ahead of them and they start chasing us, this is exactly how much gold we're going to be able to carry on our horses. You know? <laughs> and he emphasized that so many times. He's like, yeah. you know, I'm being reasonable <laughs> as I blackmail you at, because right. you were blackmailing me that <laughs> I would be very excited to see a player do that, to pull that <laughs> off. Right? Or just even like the very end of uh, Pearls of the Vampire Queen. Okay, we're going to throw away half of our treasure it had to be half. Otherwise, that guy was going to keep on. Ch- if we threw all of it, the guy was going to keep on chasing us. Yeah. Right. And if we didn't throw any of it, he would keep on chasing us. So it had to be exactly half. That was the exact number that was going to like make his eyes pop open. <laughs> right? Yeah, that was an interesting calculation. Yeah. <laughs> now, when I was asking earlier about the things you'd like to steal, I would like to share the thing that I would like to steal. Oh, yeah. I love. I love how once Delisum. Um, re-knits herself into human form and she whispers the spell into his ear and now the spell is in him and in order to travel to the underworld he has to cast this spell that has been given to him by Delisim but specifically he has to do it when somebody dies he has to be around a death because that is the way that he will be able to gain access to the underworld and I thought that was so cool I love the idea of this character re-knitting herself giving you a spell, and then you have to be around somebody who's dying in order to access it. And how that works for the players, I would love to see them figure out how the... Does that mean they're just going to go full murder hobo and just slash somebody's neck? Right. Right. And Dallas literally even says that. She literally even says, life is cheap. You can just go do that. And they're like, no, no, no. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. (laughs) You know, but then it becomes full-on scam where they're like disguising themselves, pretending to be, know this guy who's dying. And, you know, and it's, that's a caper unto itself. So that's like two, that's two sessions of the game for them even to get into hell. And then, I mean, the world of the dead and then the next part. They commissioned a silver plaque to get into the house. Like, (laughs) (laughs) Yep, yep. Very Ocean's Eleven. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I forget who said that at the patron book club, but somebody's talking about how like parts of it felt very Ocean's Eleven heist. Yep. Yeah. Um, indeed, indeed. I think also that part where she she's whispering the spell might be one of the there are at least two places where my note was just very metal. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we are running out of time. Sarah, do you have any like final thoughts about Nifthaline that you want to share with us? I would only recommend it for someone who is like very into old school swords and sorcery so that they know what they're getting into. Mm -hmm. Like it was enjoyable, but I wouldn't recommend it as much as I would other things. Hmm. Fair. Perfect. 
And uh, Sarah, are you any projects that you're working on that you want to tell people that, uh, you know? Uh, well, of course, I have to mention that whenever this airs, uh, Magpie Games should be running the Avatar The Last Airbender, or I guess it's called Avatar Legends Kickstarter. Oh, lovely. Okay. Um, so that you can, you can play Airbenders and whatnot. Um, so if you go to magpiegames.com, you'll see all the information there. And I'm, I'm hopeful that it's going really well by the time this airs. Great. And Very that will cool. be uh, also using the Apocalypse World engine? or and it is. It? It's Apocalypse World. Um, it is official. We have the license, and uh, we are working very, very hard on it. Right. So That's hopefully so cool. people like it. And Sarah, how can people find you if you, uh, whether on social media or, or your portfolio website or whatever, what is, the, what is the best way to find out more about you? And Well, you can always find stuff I'm doing at magpiegames.com. But um, you can also find me at scorcha.net if you want to see like my illustration and some of my writing. And then I'm on Twitter, Twitter as at Scorcha Doom. At Scorcha Doom. There you go. Check out Sarah's work. It's pretty amazing. Onwards, people. All right, Jeff, what have we talked about? We're talking about a Patreon or your contacts? Sure. Right. Uh, we can we can do any of that. So okay. I guess starting with our Patreon, I would love to give a shout out to the patrons who joined us for our patron book club this afternoon. Thank you to Jeremy Harper, Joseph Hoopman, Dan Alexander, Eric Hicks, Trevor Stamper, Rick Byrne, and Adam Stiers. I would also like to give a shout out to a few of our other patrons. Thank you to Michael Carnes, Dave Hotstream, Robbie Fioto, Vixter, Matt Hildebrand, Justin Hamilton, Peter Martino, and Stanley Radzewski. You all rock. Thank you so much for your continued support. Um, also want to let everybody know that the patron poll is in. For episode 108, we will be covering Gene Wolfe's The Shadow of the Torturer. So thank you for um, helping us pick that title. And Hoy, speaking of our patron polls, what are the four titles that our patrons are going to get to choose from for episode 112? Okay, here we go. The theme this time is Incursions. Okay, and the first book is David Gerald's A Matter for Men, which is the first of the War, uh, the war, for the, the war of the Keturah series. I think I have that right. Second book is William Hope Hodgson's The House on the Borderland. The third candidate is Arkady and Boris Trugatsky's Roadside Picnic. And the fourth candidate is Jeff Vandermeer's Annihilation. So incursions is the theme. Let us know which alternate reality you do not want to invade your life. <laughs> <laughs> perfect, perfect. And uh, if you want to give us general feedback, do uh, let us uh, know at appendixnbookclub at gmail.com or you can find us on Twitter at, at appendix underscore n. Thank you, folks. All right. Anything else, Jeff? Sarah, thank you so much for being on the show. This has been a blast. Sarah, it's an honor. It's so much fun talking to you. Oh, thank you. Thank you very much for having me on. This was fun. All right, everybody. See you in the stacks. Read on. The library is closed!